The Law is a White Dog is a podcast series developed for Tulka Festival of Visual Arts 2020. Made during a global pandemic, the series places artists and artworks in dialogue with lawyers, advocates and activists. As a festival of visual art produced in a time of confinement and restriction for many, the podcast series explores unseen dimensions of the artist's work. The processes and institutions of law require the senses. Testimony must be heard, evidence must be seen. However, the senses of the body, whether sight, hearing, touch or smell, might require disciplining or translation before they can be made known or recognisable or believable to the law. This episode of The Law is a White Dog focuses on Maud Craigie's film Indications of Guilt, Part 1. Maud Craigie is an artist and researcher from the UK who works with moving image, performance and installation. In her work, she investigates how fictional narrative structures expand into everyday experience. Her film was developed through extensive research into the methods of US police interrogation and their relationship to fictional screen representation. The film uses a combination of staged and documentary methods. Viewers see extracts of training materials the artist was given, including scenes from film and TV, restaged interrogation scenes made with actors, and interviews with police detectives and lawyers. Indications of Guilt Part 1 explores the complexity of truth-telling, trust and power in the operation of law enforcement. This episode places Maud Craigie in conversation with Mavo Rourke, Director of the LLM Human Rights Law Clinic at the Irish Centre for Human Rights at the National University of Ireland, Galway. Maeve studied undergraduate law in Ireland, postgraduate in the USA and practised as a barrister in the UK. Her research interests lie primarily in the development of the rule against torture and ill-treatment, human rights protections in institutional and care contexts, as well as access to justice and redress for systemic and so-called historical human rights abuses. In their conversation, Maud and Maeve discuss ideas of truth and guilt in criminal law enforcement and beyond. They also discuss the questions the film provokes, questions of access to justice, the politics of law, and who is a believable legal subject. We hear first from Maeve O'Rourke. In your film, I'm seeing you opening your email and opening up a PowerPoint presentation that then leads to movie clips. And I'm wondering, was this training material that you received? I'd obviously gone there with this interest in the relationship between fiction and interrogation and was surprised by how overt that relationship was. Uh, So they use this clip from The Wire to teach you about um, trickery, which is legal in America. In England, you're not allowed to, um, you know, tell or suggest to um, a suspect that you have evidence when you don't. But um, that is allowed in the USA. So he uses this clip from a wire to show um, pretending that a photocopying machine is a polygraph test. And he basically uses that to, to say this is something that would be totally allowed and permissible. Could you tell us a bit about that relationship between the staged scenes and the documentary methods that you used in the film? 
uh, I did the training first and I did a lot of the research first. And so that informed the content of the, the stage scenes. Uh, the stage scenes were performed uh, with Meisner actors as well as Russ, the detective. Uh, and I was interested in working with Meisner actors because they are used to kind of doing these exercises where they're given a set of circumstances and then just reacting within that set of circumstances. Um, so the first scene, uh, which is a, a woman being uh, interrogated, accused of having shaken a baby to death, um, that that scene was chosen because uh, in my research I'd found uh, from speaking to some really interesting people that uh, women who are wrongly accused it's very very often in cases where children have died um and so they're you know, and often it's children that they've known very well so it it's a particularly um traumatic experience i rocked the baby they told me to rock the baby i rocked the baby yeah. and i and i believe that that's absolutely true yeah. but what's missing from that is that you rocked the baby just a little bit too hard. When you did that, did you mean to hurt the baby or were you just frustrated? I would never hurt the baby. I, know I was that trying I, to calm it down. Thank you for it was trying. Thank you for answering that question because I don't believe that you wanted to hurt that baby. What I believe is that you were frustrated because this baby wouldn't stop. And you know, remember I told you I was there? My son just wouldn't stop crying. And even me? I'm a regular guy trying to get through the day just like you are, all right? I wanted to throw my child against the wall. I wanted to shake my own baby, my own flesh and blood. I get it. I get it. I get it. I understand it, all right? I don't think you're a monster, but other people will. No. Yeah, they no, will. No, no. They will. They can time those, no. those injuries. The, the injuries grow at a certain pace. It wasn't it, me. You were the only it one wasn't there. Me. It wasn't me. Well, who was it then? Tell me who it was. I don't know how the baby got hurt, but it wasn't me. Okay. I just followed the instructions, okay. and it wasn't okay. me. I was interested in uh, exploring the gendered aspect of the interrogation process. Uh, which also is a lot to do with how uh, bodies are used and touching and ownership of space. Uh, they talk about this um, uh, process as proxemic, so uh, basically making people uncomfortable by being too close to them um, as a kind of acceptable form of, uh, I guess, torture, um, really. Look at page uh, 70, step five. Step five and six are really more observations than they are steps of the interrogation. This is where a suspect goes from offense to defense. In other words, they start to weaken on you in there. When that woman uh, from the police department started to cry, that's step five right there. And they may seem on edge and uncomfortable, almost like they're not listening. The officer's truly very close to admitting their guilt. 
what you want to do at this point here is you want to kick it up a notch in intensity level with these individuals and keep the tension on them. Here's where you would move a little bit closer in the chair distance-wise to them. And it's at this point some of your suspects may start crying on you in there. I felt that watching, um, between listening to the training that you went to and watching the recreation of how this technique is implemented, there was there was kind of euphemism used and it was very clear that everybody understood that what goes on when women are involved is a set, essentially sexual harassment. Um, so I'm just wondering, um, I suppose I'm interested in the psychology of the people who are being trained, who are doing the training, who are reflecting on a lifetime of implementing this technique and whether, whether they uh, would see it that way, whether you had any conversations about that. I would say that I was kind of amazed by how little understanding there was during the, the training of the the gendered issues that that arose through what we were being taught. So, um, for instance, uh, we were taught that if a woman starts to cry, you should um, go in harder because it's a sign that they are about to break and tell you the truth and it's the last defence mechanism of a deceptive female. And there was this kind of quite telling moment during the training where the interrogation trainer said to us, um, who has a bigger problem with um, women crying, male interrogators or female interrogators? And then he says to the room, ladies, um, I'll let you answer this one for me. Um, and they all say female and he says yes males do and just kind of writes over um what what they've said um so yeah you're you're kind of taught all of um these worrying uh tactics uh of things that feel like very uh natural reactions uh to have if you were in a, you know a state of total panic um and as them being kind of signs of deception and that you should push harder. Remember, this can be very tedious. This can go on for hours and hours, all right? Now, Maud here, um, this is, we're play acting. This is not real, okay? But what's gonna happen is, she's gonna start to get uncomfortable. Look look what I'm doing with my leg here, my knee, okay? (laughs) See see how uncomfortable, well, it doesn't matter about the gender. Right. It's going to make her uncomfortable. So what's going to happen is she's going to want to tell me what I want to hear. Right. Okay. And in other words, because my goal is, because just, put, just trust me philosophically, okay? Please don't think I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel, please. But the whole thing is this is, United States, we can't torture people to get them to confess, okay? Right. Even though that happens. Right. Okay. But we can put all kinds of psychological pressure on them. Okay, all kinds of psychological pressure, right? And are you uncomfortable? What struck me was the leg in between your legs and also the the stroking of the knee as well. Mm -hmm. It seems to me just from a little bit of reading I did prompted by watching your film that the read technique is based on heuristics, which essentially is like brain shortcuts so that you actually don't need to think about what it is you're listening to, seeing, 
um, or dealing with, you just instinctively say to yourself, this person's guilty. Um, therefore I should press them more. And, and the one person who just, I mean, the female detective who says, if someone's sleeping, they're guilty. Um, I can tell when someone's lying right away. When people use certain, uh, terms, like I'm trying to tell you the truth. I always find that to be a lie. I'm, you're trying to tell me the truth, but you can't because it's a lie. Um, I want to tell you what happened. You want to tell me what happened, but you're not going to because you're going to lie right now. So um, body language, and you can often watch afterwards because all of our interrogations are videotaped. So I'll watch it afterwards and you could see um, people's mannerisms and when they're closed off. And when they're closed off like that, not that you're going to get a lie, but they are not opened up to telling you anything. Um, and the number one way you can tell if someone is guilty is when they go to sleep. When we bring someone in the room and they're sleeping, I'm like, oh, this dude did it for sure. I'm like, if you were in custody for murder, would you ever take a nap? I don't care how tired you were. No. But we look for nervous. Nervous means they're going to talk. Um, and sleeping means they did it and they're content with it and they don't care. So obviously you've worked in America as well. And I was wondering how much difference you find between um, the different legal systems there and um, here and in the Republic of mm -hmm. Ireland. What hit me the most in America um, was that law is politics. I mean, very overtly. And this comes through so much in your film. At a particular point, um, Russ, I think, tells you that um, from a public relations standpoint of local government, they've got to get someone. And if he's the wrong guy, well, he probably did something. Um, but they've got to get someone from a public relations standpoint. And that often comes from the fact that the prosecutors are elected, judges are elected, and so you've got, and you know, when I was in Harvard and I was studying constitutional law, the very first question that would be asked in relation to any case by the lecturer was, who appointed these judges? Um, you know, what political standpoint are these judges in this particular case? Because we'd be doing cases, you know, going back through the decades. Uh, what was their political background? And so that really is one of the biggest differences and uh, not to mention the fact that in America um, the defenders, public defenders are paid a lot less than public prosecutors and the resources are so little. And that is always, a, that's an issue in the UK and um, legal aid constantly being cut. I mean, it's an issue in Ireland, it's an issue everywhere that, you know, do the defending lawyers actually get paid to be able to go through all the evidence in the way that they need to. Is it um, filmed the interrogation? Film on a camera. No. no, it depends on the department. I take it back. Here in the state of Texas, you, we do not have to film, we do not have to do video, and we do not have to do audio. Don't have to do that. Just me and you talking is enough. Do you think it's better if it is filmed or not? It all it it depends. Here in Texas, if this is my recorder, I can hide it, and you can ask me, are we being recorded? I can say no, we're not, and it's still okay. Mm -hmm. It's a one-party state. Only one of us needs to know we're being recorded. Of course, in a criminal justice system, 
it's highly problematic when the law is being used by people who have so much power. Understanding law as politics is a very good thing when you want to work in human rights because you understand that the law is coming from a particular place or from lots of different influences and you can change those things. It, it's this thing that comes up of the idea of like the good victim or the good suspect of w- what is required to be believable. Um, how has your work changed your understanding of truth, um, in particularly in relation to, to legal understandings of truth? This is such, such an interesting question. And one uh, that I've become particularly interested in in relation to Ireland's Magdalene laundries, for example. Now, um, I've been working on a couple of cases in relation to the Magdalene laundries, but I've more worked in relation to the state's responses outside of court to hundreds of women in terms of an apology, redress scheme and an investigation. And one of the things that is a huge problem in relation to those non-court responses by the state is that the women's testimony has not been considered uh, to have much and sometimes not any evidentiary value and that the focus is all on documents and the women are considered unreliable narrators of what happened. Um, I can't help but believing that um, it is to do with the fact that what they're saying happened to them was torture within a care ostensibly care setting laundry work female labor setting and that just is considered not actually possible um and so the apology to the women in 2013 was an apology for their hurt and uh for the trauma essentially that they feel but not for legal wrongdoings and so they will say the women were not confined in any legal sense There is no credible evidence, they use this phrase a lot, no credible evidence of systematic ill treatment of a criminal nature in the Magdalene laundries. And so I do think that the law can be used to essentially gaslight people, to say what you think you know you do not know. It is not the case because the law hasn't said it is. And uh, like I said before, when you take a feminist approach to the law, you can see that, you know what women have experienced because of power structures often has not yet been considered by legal uh, mechanisms and therefore has not made its way in to the language and the truths of the law. The Law is a White Dog podcast series was commissioned by Tulka Festival of Visual Arts Curated in 2020 by Sarah Brown. Produced by Orla Higgins and Sarah Brown. Introduction narrated by Orla Higgins. Interview with Maud Craigie and Mavel Rourke. Sound engineered by Andy Gaffney at The Shift. Edited by Alan Meany. Additional editing by Sarah Brown. And music by Rory Pilgrim. Additional voices. Retired Detective Illinois. Ali Rivulet. Homicide Detective Illinois and retired detective and private investigator, Texas. Thanks to the Irish Centre for Human Rights at the National University of Ireland, Galway.